For those of you that may be joining us this Sunday, welcome first and foremost. We're glad that you're here and hope that you've been able to join into this worship. Through this summer, we have been looking at just different parables of Jesus. And I'll confess that I didn't intentionally choose this parable in light of the professions of faith that were made this morning, but I found it extremely appropriate. And so with the indulgent of the rest of you, in many ways, I'll be primarily focusing on these four individuals that stood this morning. However, of course, applicable to all of the rest of us. Our parable this morning is from Luke chapter 6. We'll be reading verses 46 through 49. The words will be on the screen behind me. But for many of you, I encourage you to not only open your Bibles and read it there, but maybe keep your Bibles open as I'll make references to things that led up to this passage. And you'll be able to see those as I go through my message. But again, it's from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6, verses 46 through 49. As I will explain, this is Jesus at the very end of what is called his Sermon on the Plain. And he says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it, because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, as I said, for the four of you that stood this morning and everyone else, I had an opportunity to look around quite a bit. I know that especially some of you have had athletic backgrounds. You've participated in different kinds of sports and activities to some extent or another. And an important part of playing sports is practice. If you have a good coach, they will spend a lot of time drilling you on the fundamentals. It's not going through the game, but it's going through every little step of what you often will see in that game and breaking it down so that you know exactly how your body should move in those circumstances. That when you're hitting a baseball, your stance should be just show and that your, your, your hands should lead the bat before you snap your wrists. And you'll practice that over and over again. When you're hitting a tennis ball, your stance and preparation should be just so. And then when you get ready to swing, you should draw back so far, keep your arm at a particular angle, and then follow all the way through. It's, I could go sport after sport after sport, rehearsing those fundamentals over and over again and stopping you. And saying, no, your weight is off. No, you're not looking in the right direction. No, your feet are in the wrong position or, or step further apart. Remember and practice over and over and over again. And the reason why a coach will do that is because we have our natural tendencies. 
We will just automatically do certain things. And when the pressure situation of the game arises, they don't want you falling back into your old wrong patterns, but they want you to fall back on the drills and that your body will naturally do what is right. So in those pressure important moments of the game, your body will do what it's supposed to do and you will actually succeed rather than making a mistake. Well, as it is in sports, so it is in life. In this parable, Jesus talks about times when a flood arose and the stream broke against this house. Now, admittedly, this detail of the parable is flood is not explained, but the options and the understanding of what Jesus is talking about is, is very limited and fairly straightforward. Most connect the floods to the trials and hardships of life. For the four of you, you are young, and yet all of you have talked about how there already have been experiences in your life where there have been trials and hardships that you've had to face. But the reality is that because you are young, I promise that more will come. You will face circumstances that are stressful that you don't know that you're prepared to face. You will have people that you care about and love betray you and leave you hanging. You or those that you love will face medical issues that you have no answers for and you have to surrender to the care of the doctors not knowing what will happen and those that you love will lose their lives at some point. Life is a challenge. Floods and storms will come and they will be hard. Another understanding of these floods that come and another way that we use that word trials is the trials of things not that come and happen to us, but the temptations that we feel within ourselves. So Braden, you're already in college. Taylor, you are literally days away from moving on to the next part in your career. And Grace and Darla, cover your mom's ears, but it's going to be here way before you know it. And in making that move, you're going to enter into whole new communities where you have no reputation and background that people are aware of to uphold. They don't know about your past or who you are like we've seen in the schools you've attended for the past several years. You can be whoever you want to be and you will face temptations that are different and that are hard. And in facing those trials, like a flood that come at you with all kinds of things pulling you in different directions, the question is, how will you respond? Today, you stood and you professed your faith. You said that you believe that Jesus is the Lord, the one who died to save you from your sins. And everybody wants a savior. Everyone wants to be forgiven and wants to go to heaven instead of being condemned to hell. But another important thing that you said is that you want Jesus to be your Lord and to surrender to him as such. And in many ways, today's the easy part. It's easy in this context to stand and to make that declaration, to make that promise to the world. But the reality is the questions will come when the floods hit your life. When you go through those hard times, when you face those temptations, how will you respond then? Will the life 
the faith, the house that you have been building stand at those moments? Or will they crumble? That's the concern of Jesus as he addresses those that were listening to him. And in that concern, he gives a warning about those floods that will come. But he also offers instruction in this parable on how to build a house of faith. A life that will withstand those times of struggles and trials and flooding that will come. Well, as we've noticed with a lot of the other parables that we look at, we get a deeper and better understanding of the parable by looking at the context within which it is found, and that is certainly the case for this one. We understand this meaning so much better when we look at the rest of chapter 6 of Luke. And in that chapter, we see several incredible things. It starts at the beginning of the chapter of some challenges with Jesus about how he's acting on the Sabbath. First of all, he permitted his disciples to eat some food, to pluck some grain and, and pop it into their mouths without rebuke or without challenge. Some people saw this and they didn't like that and it led Jesus to make the claim, I am the Lord of the Sabbath, which is an incredibly bold claim. But it is backed up by the next story where on this, another Sabbath, Jesus heals a man, showing his power over the created order, his power and authority over the law itself. And that reveals that if you're going to build a life, a good faith, you have to figure out what to do with this person named Jesus and how you're going to respond to him. Well, after telling these stories, we, we realize that, that people are starting to get divided in their reactions to Jesus. Because of the miracles he's performing and his great teachings, multitudes of people are coming to him. And they are being healed of their diseases. They are being cured of unclean spirits. And so of these multitudes, many want to hear. But that's where they stay at the background. And of that larger group, there is becoming a smaller group of people. People who not only are listening, but they're ready to believe what Jesus is saying about himself. Believe the evidence of the miracles, put their faith in him, and these are his disciples. But even in that group, in Luke chapter 6, we are told that of them, he creates a smaller group that he designates as his 12 apostles. Names them. And while there is an extra special privilege for them to see and hear and be instructed more deeply and intentionally, there's extra responsibility on them as his apostles to be sent ones to go and to represent Jesus. And then we get into his teachings. I believe that starts on verse 17 of our text. This is where uh, Jesus, in this great multitude of people, starts to instruct this great crowd. And they hear of his incredible ideas. And what happens in the rest of chapter 6 of Luke is parallels very much of what Matthew has in the five chapters of Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount. But because we are told explicitly that Jesus descended from the mount and goes to the plain, this is Luke's parallel that's called the Sermon on the Plain. And it echoes much of what was said in the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus gives some very challenging teachings. He talks about uh, things that are completely counter, counter to our human nature 
and kind of contradictory to the world's understandings of things. Starts, for example, about talking about how there are blessings to be found in being poor, in being hungry, in weeping, and even in being persecuted for his name. And to, to put a fine point on it, he actually speaks a word of woe to those who are rich, who are well-fed, who are spoken well of, and who are celebrated. And then he goes on to continue in his instructions. And he says that we are to love our enemies and to do good to those who hate you. And to turn the other cheek. He speaks against judging others and against hypocrisy, calling us to look at our own lives before we start to nitpick the details of other people's lives. And then he ends with this statement that only good trees produce good fruit in another parable, saying that our actions reveal our heart's conditions. All good ideas, all beautiful teachings, but hard things, things difficult to do. And then, just as it seems like he's getting ready to walk to the back of the crowd and stand there as they shake his hand and say, that was a really nice message, appreciated the teachings for this morning, and then go live unchanged lives, Jesus challenges them with this parable that we read starting in verse 46. And he says, it starts with a question. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? And again, in case you've been missing it, which it should be hard to do, it reveals that Jesus is serious about what he has been saying. He's not just talking to share some good ideas and to get us to think a little bit differently about things. He doesn't want to be applauded and appreciated for how well-spoken he is. He isn't trying to change minds. He is calling people to live different lives. Jesus doesn't want you to think and talk about what it would look like and mean to love your enemies. He wants you to love your enemy. To bless those who curse you. For example. And that's very hard. But we have to remember that he has the right to do that. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. He is the Lord. Now that term Lord is one that we get pretty familiar with and we throw around an awful lot. It is a scriptural way that describes who God is. But we should remember what that word means in general and what it is saying about God and what it says about Jesus when we ascribe that word to him as well. The word Lord in any other context means boss. The king, the one who has in charge, the one who has the authority, the right to tell you what to do and expect you to follow and to obey. And so in light of what Jesus is saying and the challenging question that he is, is how can you say that I am Lord, but then not follow through by actually doing the things that I'm calling you to do? 
And again, for you four that professed your faith this morning, and for the rest of us, it is easy to sing songs about Jesus as Lord. It's easy to repeat that word over and over again in our prayers. But it's also really easy to use that name in vain and just speak it without actually surrendering to Jesus as our Lord. Yes, we want a Savior. We have sinned. We want to be forgiven. But when we profess our faith, we are not just asking Jesus to be our Savior, but we are intentionally giving him permission to tell us how to live our lives to dedicate ourselves to obedience to him, which is the very heart of this parable. In verse 47, Jesus uses three verbs, three different ways that are important in approaching him. And in many ways, this becomes the descriptions of ways that we can respond to him. The first step is to come to him. There are those that never hear about Jesus don't know who he is or what he ever did. There are many more or, or many others who, who hear from others or see in others enough that they think, you know what, I want nothing to do with him. He wasn't significant. He wasn't important. And therefore, they never really come to him at all. One commentary I read described these people as homeless people. And I like that idea. They are people that have no grounding at all. Their life is a constant and continual flood where they have nothing to, to anchor them to anything. They constantly, in whatever is happening to them, are just at the whims of those circumstances, choosing how to react and how to respond by whatever feels right or good to them in the moment. There is no consistency in their decisions. There is no grounding. And when there are hard times that come, they are lost. We know what those people look like. But as much as I like that from a commentary, in truth, we have to recognize that those people are not really covered in this parable. And that needs to be pointed out. When Thinking about this parable of the man who builds the house with a good foundation on the rock versus one who builds with no foundation, oftentimes we assume that Jesus is talking about those that know him and those that don't. People who have and profess a faith versus those who, who don't trust in him. Those are the ones with houses without foundations. But when you look at the parable, that's not where Jesus is drawing his lines of distinction. Instead, Jesus highlights that there's a second group of people, those who do come, and they do hear, but that's where things stop. They like what Jesus might do for them, they appreciate his teachings, his ideas as, as a wise philosophy to be considered. And, and maybe even the world would look good if everybody acted like this. But after hearing those things, they go off and it changes nothing in how they live their lives. They act and make choices and govern their days just like the homeless. 
Not grounded in the actual obedience, but just in the ideas. These are the people that Jesus is referring to when he talks about those that build a house without a foundation. The house might look really nice. It might fit well into the neighborhood, being indistinguishable from all of the other houses. And, And when things are normal and fine, you might not ever be able to tell of what their foundation looks like. But as any builder would be able to tell you, a house without a foundation is extremely vulnerable. Because, as this parable suggests, when flooding, when trials, when hardships come, it won't stand very long. The house crumbles, and the ruin of that house was great. For this person, they listened to the ideas of Jesus but in not putting them into practice like the athlete that listens but doesn't practice the drills. In situations of stress and trials, they fall back on their old habits. They trust their gut or they live like they've never known Jesus and just follow what feels good in the moment. Then anything that had been built, any lesson that had been heard is useless to them because they never put it into practice. So there's no help when life gets hard. No direction to fall back on, no experience to build on. But that circumstance is fixed with the third type of person. This is the person that does all three of the verbs. They come, they hear, and they do. This is the person that truly surrenders to Jesus as Lord. That when they hear the message of his word, they don't just agree with the ideas, but they put it into practice in their lives. And when they do that, they realize again and again that Jesus had their interest at heart. That when you stop following your own passions, when you start loving your neighbor and and serving even those that criticize or challenge you, That when you stop prioritizing the things of the world like possessions and start instead prioritizing people, life goes better. Life itself changes. And in learning that lesson when things are easy, when the hardships and the trials come, guess what? They continue to lean on the words and instructions of the God that had carried them that far And they are grounded in their life and their faith and their lives stand firm. Very often when people profess their faith, one of my favorite questions to ask is when has the Lord been real to you? When have you truly experienced the blessing of being a child of God? And more often than not, when people answer that question, they answer with, the floods of their life. Moments when life was not so secure, moments when things were challenging to them, where they were lost for direction, and when they clung to their relationship with the Lord, he showed up and he blessed them and he guided them. And in many ways, that's exactly what this parable is all about. It is about a God that loves you, who wants a good life for you, 
and that wants to be there, that when finding out that every time you trust in him and do what he says, life goes better. I don't think that the application is hard to figure out when you look at this text. I don't think I've said anything overly profound, and honestly, this week I struggled a bit because on the surface level, the understanding of the message of this passage is pretty straightforward. To make Jesus Lord is to obey him. And in obeying his word, we do lay a good foundation for our life, which will benefit us when life gets hard. It's a truth that's easy to see. It is a truth easily experienced when you walk with people through those hard times of life and see the importance of that foundation. But as easy as that truth is to recognize in this text, it's hard to apply especially broadly as a topic. Jesus throughout the Gospels and throughout Scripture calls us to live lives that are radically different from the rest of the world and from what our hearts often want to do and be. And it takes active submission to choose to trust his word and put it into practice. But that's not just the journey of faith. It is the path to a well-grounded and secure life. And so again, Brayden, Grace, Darla, and Taylor, today you proclaimed that you're building a house, that you are coming to Christ and you have heard his message of salvation and have accepted it. But I also challenge you along with the rest of everybody else here to recognize that only gets us part of the way. The wise building of your life, your faith, your house isn't about what you think and say here. It's about what you're going to do out there. I pray that you will get in the practice of obeying or doing the work of the Lord. And that by being in that practice, when those trials, when those floods of life do come, you will fall back not on your natural habits, but you will fall back on that drill of experiencing the fact that when God instructs you and you trust in him and obey his word, he shows up and life goes better. That's the blessing of surrendering to Jesus as your Lord, and that's the encouragement for all of us. As we not only hear this message this morning, but we go forth and we experience temptations we face trials in our lives. The question is, where are you building your house? Toward that end, let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, for each and every one of us, we've come. We are here. We have heard. For the vast majority of us, we have heard over and over again from Sunday school teachers, from chapel leaders, from youth directors and pastors, our lives are surrounded by your words. And yet, O oh Lord, we confess that we have not always put them into practice. We have heard and we have celebrated your word, but we have not done what it is said. Lord, I want to begin by praying for those who could not stand or did not stand when trials came. For those that at one point in their lives stood and declared a faith, but now have wandered, Lord, draw them back to you. Help them to see the joys of obedience, 
and the privilege of a relationship with you. But especially for the four that stood this morning and for the rest of us, I do pray that we would be in the practice of actually obeying you. That the words, Lord, Lord, in describing you would not merely be that, words, but they would be the attitude of our heart and the fruit of all that we produce. And so, Lord, I pray, as we face trials this very week, as we are tempted to disobey you, as we are tempted this week to lean on our own hearts and understanding that we would surrender to you and instead of doing what we want, we would fall back on the testimony of faith that we declare this day. You are not only our Savior, but you are our Lord, our boss, our King, the one who is in charge of our lives. May that be evident in the way that we live. This we pray in Jesus' name, amen.